Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. This is MPB News. Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Wednesday, June 3rd. I'm Cameron Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, the young hurricane season is off to a fast start. We take a closer look at what Mississippians can expect from Tropical Storm Cristobal. Then, as tensions over the extrajudicial policing of people of color mount, the state's attorney general dismisses a 2015 case involving the shooting of a black Columbus man. We talk to the district attorney who sent the case to the state. Plus, after a Southern Remedy Health Minute, we examine the role of the president and military in times of civil unrest. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. The official hurricane season is young, just three days old, and the Gulf states are already bracing for their first threat of tropical weather. A depression in the Bay of Campeche was upgraded to Tropical Storm Cristobal yesterday, making it the earliest named third storm in recorded history. We're joined now by Robert Hicks with the National Weather Service. Oh, Ricks. I'm sorry, Robert Ricks with the National Weather Service in New Orleans, Baton Rouge. Good morning. Thank you so much for being with us, Robert. Good morning. So can you tell us what is the current status of Tropical Storm Cristobal and how it might affect the Gulf Coast? Sure. Well, right now it's very near the uh, coast of, uh, of Mexico uh, in the lower Bay of Campeche. We're expecting it to go inland and then weaken a little bit. But then reemerge back over the central Gulf and reintensify back to at least tropical storm, and cannot even rule out that it might even reach a Category One hurricane at some point, just prior to landfall somewhere along the Louisiana coast. So Louisiana coast, and then moving over towards Mississippi. Uh, when do we expect that? Saturday. Well, right now the uh, we're indicating that to be late Sunday night, early Monday morning uh, time frame. But in, in, until then, we're going to have this whole weekend of um, seas building and, and, and tides increasing along the Mississippi coast, as well as um, potential for some very heavy rainfall, as we've seen already this morning. And each day between now and, say, next Monday, we'll, we'll be in uh, quite a bit of heavy rainfall uh, 
on and off throughout the throughout that time frame. Tell us a little bit about the forecast models and how much this situation could change before late Sunday, early Monday. Right. Well, right now the big uncertainty lies on um, its interaction with land and how much it weakens while it's over Mexico. And then, so the models are going to behave in different ways because of that. And then once it reemerges, then the models are going to start picking up on uh, new generation, if you will. And then that they'll start coming a little bit more in line and, and probably behaving a little bit better. But until then, it's going to be rather erratic because the models are going to have different physics in it that determines which way these systems move when they're really weak. Once it gets a little more developed uh, over the central gulf, then I think the models will lock in and have a better handle on things. So here we are, day three of hurricane season. Is it unusual to be dealing with tropical weather this early? It can be. Uh, however, we've noticed in the past six seasons, that five of the past six seasons, we've had early, say, May or early June storms already. Not necessarily in the Gulf, but at least in the Atlantic Basin. So there has been a, a tendency uh, in recent years, at least in the past decade, for them to start sooner. Um, is there a reason attributed to that? Uh, it, I mean, it could be speculated uh, global climate change. Um, we were, uh, phases as far as the El Nino goes. Right now we are not in El Nino pattern, so that would favor some development, a um, little, little easier development. And the overall pattern that we're in is also favorable, uh, just generally speaking, the general weather pattern as we're, that we're currently under. And does the Gulf temperature have an effect on how strong storms might be? It, it can. It's more the depth of the hot water. Um, we're looking typically for 80 degrees or higher, and the water temperatures in the Gulf are definitely that. Uh, they are higher. And if it's right at shallow and right at the surface, it, it tends to have a lesser effect. But if it's at some depth, say, you know, if, if that warm water goes, say, 100 feet down or so into the top of the surface water, um, then they, these systems have a better chance of surviving and even intensifying. Which is why, I suppose, in August we're looking at we're looking at the better chance because it's a lot hotter right. in August. Right. The water temperatures typically run close to the 90 degrees out in the middle Gulf. And when you have that, and if it's really deep hot water, well, then, uh, yeah, it keeps the storms perpetuating, at least maintaining their intensity, if not increasing it. Well, we'll keep an eye on it. We know you're keeping an eye on it, Robert Ricks. Yes, we are. With the National Weather Service in New Orleans, Baton Rouge. Thanks so much for being with us. Y'all have a good day. You too. Coming up, as tensions over the extrajudicial policing of people of color mount, the state's attorney general dismisses a 2015 case involving the shooting of a black Columbus man. We talked to the district attorney who sent the case to the state. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hi, I'm Jason Klein from Fix It 101. If you ever thought about changing a doorknob or fixing a leaky faucet, some jobs just aren't that difficult, and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101, podcast everywhere. This is Mississippi Edition. I'm Karen Brown. The 2015 case of Ricky Ball, a 25-year-old black Columbus man who was shot during a police traffic stop, is being dismissed by Attorney General Lynn Fitch. The dismissal comes as the nation is rocked by protests following the death of George Floyd at the knee of a Minneapolis cop. In a statement, the AG's office cited a lack of evidence to prosecute the case. Scott Colomb is the district attorney in Columbus who worked with then-Attorney 
General Jim Hood to get the case out of his district to ensure the case was free of local influence. He shares his thoughts on the case and the dismissal with our Ashley Norwood. The case in 2015 where Mr. Ball was shot and killed was caused a lot of uh, controversy and a lot of questions at the time in Columbus. And in 2016, I transferred the case to Attorney General Jim Hood, and the case was indicted. And then in 2019, a new Attorney General was elected, and after four or five months, the case was dismissed without much explanation. And uh, during the middle of a national crisis and reckoning around uh, uh, racism and police brutality. So... I criticized the timing because it was just really um, troubling, and I was concerned about uh, the impact that would have, and also the method to the extent that there's really not very much explanation the public received as to why the charge was dismissed. For a case like this, they, they've got to get more than two paragraphs in a press release. Uh, the comment about uh, slapping the face referred to what people called and told me as to how they felt in regards to the decision to do it at this particular moment. For some people, <clears throat> this case in 2015 may be new. Do you mind just, you know, briefly kind of explaining what happened in 2015 and talk about the man whose life was lost? Well, I mean, honestly, I don't know all the details, so I don't feel comfortable going into detail about it. Mm-hmm. Um, I can say what's been reported publicly is that Ricky Ball was um, pulled over and uh, ultimately occurred where he was shot by a police officer and the officer claimed it was self-defense and that Mr. Ball had a gun. Uh, the controversy was that the gun that was uh, allegedly found next to Mr. Ball had been reported stolen by another police officer uh, sometime before uh, and that police officer was on the scene that night. So there was a lot of allegations in the public that the gun was planted. Um, now, once the case was turned over to the grand jury, I mean, excuse me, turned over to the attorney general's office, I really didn't have an opportunity to go through it and the detail necessary to determine uh, whether the suit is justifiable or not. And not one time have I criticized the actual decision to dismiss the case because I haven't had a chance to review facts and evidence and apply it to the law, and there may be an ethical reason why they dismissed the charge. My criticism has been about the timing of the dismissal and the way it was done. With all the rumors and all the gossip and all the suspicion around that shooting back in 2015, to dismiss the case with a two-paragraph press release and not answer any of those questions, not clearing up any of those rumors and gossip, that really, I was concerned, was going to cause a spark in Columbus. And... It did. There have been protests um, two of the last three days. Uh, they've been peaceful, and um, and I think people's voice is being heard. But as I anticipated when I was told the news, the way it was done was, was bound to cause uh, distrust. And that's why my next step has been requesting the Attorney General give me my office the evidence uh, as soon as possible. So... Uh, that I can reveal it and answer those questions so people can feel like the truth is out there and they can make up their own mind as to whether the decision was proper or not. And how long might that take? When, when will we know something or hear something back? I talked to a spokesperson for the Attorney General's office yesterday. 
they assured me that they understood the necessity to get the information to me as quickly as possible. I don't want this to appear as if this is about me as district attorney and Lynn Fitz as attorney general, because that's not what it's about. What it's about is the, the, the manslaughter charge for Ricky Ball and the truth about what happened, about making sure the public has trust in the criminal justice system. It's not personal for me at all. I'm concerned about making sure my community has trust in the criminal justice system because once this all at some point blows over, I'm going to be the person, and along with other local officials, they're going to have to deal with the distrust. You talked a little bit about... um... Thank you for saying that. You talked a little bit about um, how the community has responded to the decision. Um, is there anything you want to say to the district you serve about um, finding the truth about this case, about the protests? Well, I want them to know is that uh, I've committed to doing everything in my power to find out all the evidence in this case and revealing as much of it as I can to the public. Uh, I, ask to be, I ask them to be patient. I mean, it's been a long time. This case has been lingering for a long time. But the truth matters, and if they'll be patient, we'll get the truth out. And at that point, they'll get to make up their mind for themselves as to whether the shooting was justified or not. And at this point, that's all we can ask for. And you, you may hear some people say, you know, well, this happened in Columbus. Maybe it's a Columbus issue. But how do you see this affecting our state and even beyond Mississippi making this a nationwide situation or issue concern? Anybody paying attention to the news and what's going on in our country knows that the relationship between the African-American community and the police is a point of crisis. If we don't somehow build trust between African-Americans and the police where African-Americans can feel that they aren't systematically discriminated against, systematically uh, subject to different treatment when it comes to use of force, then we're not going to be able to move forward in a positive direction as a country. So the central question of our time is how do we rebuild the trust between those two communities? And I know that there's a lot of people in law enforcement that want to build that trust, but we can't do that by turning a blind eye to what's right in front of us. We build trust by being honest, living in truth, and pursuing justice. And if we do that, then we can live with the results as a country, as a state, and as a community. Scott Colomb is the district attorney for the 16th district serving the city of Columbus. Coming up after a Southern Remedy Health Minute, we examine the role of the president and military in times of civil unrest. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. No matter if you use an app to start your car or still have a flip phone, Everyday Tech can decipher today's technology for tomorrow's solutions. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or the MPB public media app. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, professor of pediatrics and internal medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center, and this is a Southern Remedy Health Minute. doctor said that I have a stage two or stage three heart murmur. They said, you know, you might want to get an appointment with a cardiologist and have a uh, echocardiogram. Are heart murmurs, are they really serious? There are four valves in the heart and those valves normally make some sounds. A murmur is an extra sound. It's really caused by turbulent blood flow most of the time. The blood flowing through the heart is sort of like water flowing through a hose in your yard if you're watering. And if you kink that hose, it makes an extra sound, right? So it's that turbulent flow of the blood going through our heart 
that causes the murmur. Many murmurs are benign. They don't cause any problems. They typically occur in much younger individuals. It's very common in pediatric age ranges. As we get older, it's less common that those are benign and that they need to be investigated just to make sure that it's not something that we need to monitor uh, or is more serious that would require some intervention. Most of the problem does occur in the valves, either with them being leaky or you have a valve that closes up over time from calcification. The leaky valve and the narrow valve, it has to be watched over time. You know, it can lead to things like heart failure. Uh, it can certainly put you at risk for uh, damage to your heart as well as damage uh, to the rest of your body just because the heart uh, uh, pushes blood through it. We, we have a grading system of murmurs. Two is a, is a soft murmur. It's a little bit less intensity. Three is one that's, that's probably the loudest you can hear uh, without feeling it. And you can feel these, just the vibrations on the chest. It really depends on where they're hearing that and at what point in the heart cycle that they're hearing it. But the echo is going to tell you the most. It's going to be the, the, the best test, really, to determine where that murmur may be coming from, what is causing it, and is it something that, uh, you know, what degree uh, that it's happening? Is it something that you need to do something uh, else about? For more health tips and medical information, listen to Southern Remedy each weekday morning at 11 on MPB Think Radio. This is MPB Think Radio. Mississippi is our mission. This is Mississippi Edition. I'm Karen Brown. As protests ripple throughout the nation, President Donald Trump is urging governors to crack down on demonstrations by dominating the streets. In a prepared statement Monday evening, he threatened force of the United States military if displays of arson and looting continue. Matt Steffi is a professor of constitutional law at Mississippi College School of Law. He joins us to discuss the role of the president, the military, and the Insurrection Act in times of civil unrest. The Insurrection Act, in its current form, dates back to 1807. And what it does is it empowers the U.S. president to call into service both the armed forces and the National Guard in three different sets of circumstances. The, the, the first, and by far the most common, is when requested by a state to assist, for lack of a better word, an insurrection, whatever that actually means. And so it allows uh, the president to respond to the call of a state to provide assistance, which uh, the president can do by sending in military troops or, more commonly, by federalizing and taking command of the National Guard. As I understand, the last time it was used was after the police officers were acquitted in the Rodney King beating? That's correct. Well, that's right. The L.A. riots was the last time it was used back in 1992. At the time, both the California Army National Guard and the U.S. military were called into service in addition to federal law enforcement agencies. Does the president of the United States have the authority to send in U.S. military 
into states where the governor does not want their presence? Yes, although it's quite unusual. The last time that happened was in 1963 to enforce desegregation orders on Alabama public schools. The time before that, the Ole Miss uh, riot of 1962. So the president does have that authority, although that is both both I, I, most presidents have been reluctant to turn to that authority, and it's been uh, considerably less frequent. The president's permitted to do that in two circumstances. One is when it, it's impractical to enforce the law due to an insurrection, or in the third category is to address an insurrection, domestic violence, or some unlawful conspiracy to deprive people of their constitutionally protected rights. Tell me this. If if the military was dispatched, and as I understand it, the President of the United States has oversight of the military, yeah. where, where some of the protesters are protesting against the actions or inactions of President Trump. So it seems there would be a conflict of interest. Who gives the orders? Well, the president ultimately would give the orders through his military commanders. And there is there are what I would call tension um, in the president or in any law enforcement uh, effort here, because there is a need to, on the one hand, protect citizens and their property against violent protests, against what is otherwise criminal destruction of property or injury to person. On the other hand, the president and others have a constitutional duty to protect lawful and peaceful protests. And we saw a bit of that tension with the president's trip to the Episcopal uh, Cathedral in Washington, which in which there were non-lethal or less lethal uh, for, uh, elements of force used against what were otherwise peaceful protesters um, who were still protesting before the curfew. And I think that underscores the tension you're talking about. Normally, you would imagine the role of law enforcement to try to provide a presence to deter uh, violent, lawless protests on the one hand, while protecting lawful, peaceful protests on the other. And because the president is commander-in-chief of the National Guard there in Washington, it gave us a little bit of an insight about perhaps the president's approach to these circumstances. Is it unusual for any president to go to the Insurrection Act because it escalates, it has the potential to escalate violence as opposed to de-escalate violence? Well, anytime you introduce more lethal force, there's a potential to escalate violence. Anytime uh, uh, you add more force, it's by definition an escalation. But I do think the reason that, lo that looking to the uh, Insurrection Act is a last, not first resort. It has happened exactly twice in, since 1968 because it is... It, it reflects an unfortunate circumstance and represents a potentially unfortunate 
escalation, turning what starts off as protest, the protests get out of hand uh, into some elements of rioting and to turn it into a, mili- a domestic military situation is an unfortunate term, really by any measure. Matt Steffi is a professor of law at Mississippi College School of Law. Thank you so much, Matt. It's always my pleasure, Karen. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter, and fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning. I'm Karen Brown. Thanks for listening. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB Think Radio.